Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, which is two things each and every week. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. We also have a lot of fun here, and this week is going to be fun through and through. Our special guest, Mo Rocca. Uh, You know him from many parts of his life as a journalist, as an entertainer, as a writer, as a thinker as a producer of things that make us smile, make us laugh, and understand our world a little bit better. Mo, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Major, thanks for having me. And I apologize in advance for my background. This is the background that got me a 1 out of 10 on Room Raider. Well, I have uh, my own uh, problems with Room Raider. I think it is... uh, well, let us, what, what is the word I'm looking, arbitrary is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I think it kind of is. And there is something about them that is, I think, unnecessarily vindictive in these times when we should be a little bit more generous with adaptation. They're a little on the harsh side, and um, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, I think that's fair. I, 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 let's cancel. I mean, I mean, just for myself, I give that background a solid 3.7. Well, I was going for something monastic. That's what I. But I think it comes off more as hostage yes, video. Yes, yes. I I actually believe I detect a low level chanting. Very, 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 yes. very low. Very low. Right. Okay. Um, how are you, Mo? Um, adapting to all of this. I think all of us have stories. All of us will tell our friends, our children, nieces, nephews about this ten or fifteen years from now. What was it like? What's it been like for you? Well, um, for somebody who has fought the inclination to bury, <clears throat> to bury himself in his work, um, it's kind of great to have that problem now, right? It's great right. to be somebody who tends to bury himself in work because it's, it's, um, it's made it less difficult, I think, for me than other people. I think, but simply, I think for people that are not working, it's horrible for many reasons. Yep. Um, and uh, um, and I've enjoyed, so I've, I've really enjoyed doing pieces. Um, I've frankly been happy to be off of airplanes. Um, mm-hmm. I don't love traveling all the time. Um, and uh, and it's been nice to be home. Or it's been nice to be home more, to spend time at home more. And it is true, and I've said this many times on this program, I benefit from the work I do in these times in ways that people who 
have work that requires them to be on the front lines, whether they're nurses or doctors or whether they work at supermarkets or whether they are first responders. Their chosen life's work places them in jeopardy. My chosen life's work typically does not. My skill set allows me to work from home. It is a tremendous blessing to be able to do much of this creative work, journalistic work, from home and to have the technology that makes it possible. Uh, I consider myself enormously grateful to have that opportunity and not to be placed in position, which I know millions of Americans are and millions of people around the world who have no choice. Their chosen form of work puts them at a higher stage of risk. And I mention this every show, and I don't do it as a matter of course or just dicta. I mean it. Thank you for being out there. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Know that all of us who benefit from your work, appreciate what you're doing, and are thinking about you all the time. I've had a few interactions with people, those essential workers that you are talking about, who really put themselves at risk. And, and, and I've had a few interactions where they've said to me, thank you for keeping me entertained, diverted. Um, right. And, you know, it's kind of a funny position to be in because, of course, they're really the ones that should be thanked. So it is a great opportunity to be able to do the kind of work that we do. I'm not saying you're, you know, you're covering politics. That's not a diversion, but I've, I, it's been a real privilege for me to be able to tell stories that in some ways I think um, give people a break. Exactly. You mentioned you're someone who likes to bury himself in his work. There are those who would hear that metaphor and say, wow, that sounds a little harsh. To me, in your words and your description of it, it doesn't sound harsh, but there are those who do bury themselves in work as a way to escape something or a way to run away from something. How do you think about burying yourself in work? Totally fair question, of course. I'm being a little bit cheeky about that. Um, um, you know, I, I like to work. I, um, I like to make people interested in things that I'm interested in. I love when people are in, become interested in something they never expected to be interested in because I've won them over that way with, with, the, with subject matter. Um, but I think that um, um, there have been times in my life, less so now, where I've been sort of throwing everything against the wall to see what will stick to kind of figure <laughs> out where my place is. And that's certainly nothing you know, to be ashamed of. I'm, I would even say I'm proud that I've done that, that I've had that kind of grit um, um, to do that. But, um, but it's definitely nice when um, there's more time, <laughs> when, when there's time where you're doing nothing. That's kind of, and I also think it makes the work better. I mean, when I've, when I've shut off the phone and when I've taken breaks, those are actually oftentimes the most creative periods for me. Sure. And when you think about the arc of your career, um, you now spend a lot more time on the informational side and getting people curious about things that they weren't before. You started in the either children's literature or writing for children's shows, and there was a whole comedic part of your career. Do they all, in retrospect, look strategic, or is the truth that they were part of that process of seeing what would stick on the wall? They don't look strategic, but they're all related. Because I do think, and I know other journalists, um, uh, kind of sometimes um, don't, don't love this um, uh, analysis, but I do think it's all about engagement um, and um, not entertainment so much, but 
telling stories, you know, I know it sounds awfully lofty. We're, we're telling stories. That's what we do. I was put on this earth to tell stories. But um, I think of an interview as a little bit of a, a scene kind of, right? Like great interviews are great two-person scenes in a way right. where I think the interviewer hopefully is playing best supporting actor, right? It's not, they're not, it's not a co-starring role. It's not, um, but I think as somebody, I, I, you know, this pops into my head, Morley Safer did a, a profile of Alec Baldwin probably about 10 years ago in 60 Minutes. And, and it's like, it's a great two-person scene and Morley sh shifting here, shifting there to provoke different reactions, to get to different places. Um, and um, good acting is real and a good interview is real. So I'm not saying it's about artifice. I'm not saying that, that you're playing roles as in pretending to be somebody else. Um, but, you know, great actors, when I've done plays, I've tried my best to take um, the, the advice from great directors and great actors, which is listen, listen, listen. Um, and I think the same goes in an interview. So I, I don't, I don't feel like, you know, it would be, it's tempting for me to say, oh, the Daily Show and Sunday Morning, it's kind of like they're opposites and there's something subversive about that, but they're, it's kind of not. There's, a, there's more similarity. There's much more overlap. Right. When I talk to young journalists, they always ask me about how do you write the best questions for your interviews? And I say, well, there's a certain technique and approach to that. But the most important thing to do once you start an interview, after you've done all those questions and you've done all that preparation, is to do what you just said. Listen to the actual answers. They will give you another roadmap, and you can find all sorts of things to pursue from the actual answers that may reinforce or cancel some of the questions you've had in the first place. How long did it take you to give up the habit of thinking about what the next question was going to be while the interviewee was actually answering the previous question. At least a decade. It's hard. Yeah, it is because you train yourself that way. More on the philosophy of life, journalism, telling stories, and childlike wonder, which I think Mo Rocca has about so many things. And I say that with the deepest admiration and respect. Mo Rock is our special guest. You're listening to, watching, and thoroughly enjoying, as you do each and every week, The Takeout. Back for segment two in a second. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout. With Major Garrett. Well, Rock is our special guest. You know him and love him from all sorts of different things in uh, American entertainment sphere. Uh, you may hear him on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You may see him on the Innovation Nation, if I have the remember the show's name correctly. You see him on Sunday morning. You may remember him from The Daily Show. All sorts of things he's done in his life. Uh, is anyone allowed to call you Maurice? Well, my mother and my two brothers do. Um... I have a couple of very old friends from childhood who started calling me Mo, and I 
I was a little disappointed in that. I wanted them, I think one still does call me Maurice. So relatives will call me Maurice, but, but very few friends. Um, and so I, I kind of wish that more people did. So, you know, some people call me Maurice. And woo, woo. I was going to ask you, yeah. that had to be part <laughs> at some part of your childhood. It was, and I, I was a little. I'm a little slow right now, as you can see, but uh, but definitely yes. I mean, I, although I, I don't, I still don't know what a pompatus of love is. Uh, neither does Steve Miller, so it's okay. Uh, you started as a writer for children's television, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you find that experience to be what you wanted to start with? Was that a a, a thing you pursued, or did it be- come about because you fell into it? Somewhere in between, I'd come to New York to be a stage actor. I was in the Southeast Asian tour, the musical Grease. Um, I did, a, which you may have seen me in Jakarta, standing room only. Um, yes. <clears throat> and then a, a very dear friend of mine developed a show about a Jack Russell Terrier who teaches kids about literature called Wishbone. And I trusted her so much, my friend Stephanie Simpson, that in my mid-20s. I just up and moved to the suburbs of Dallas. I left New York uh, and I learned so much. And I'm not kidding when I tell you that of all the jobs I've had, that's the one that I go back to constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, Because to learn to take, each episode was based on a different work of classic literature, mostly Western canon, to take a great book and to kind of, to distill it I don't even want to say reduce, but to distill it to 30 minutes for a six to 11 year old audience as told through the eyes of a dog is such an extraordinary muscle building exercise. I learned so much from that. And it was also kind of idyllic because I remember that the executive for PBS came down to look at the pilot episode, which was, um, Oliver Twist, based on Oliver Twist. And I remember that our meeting with her were all, was all about story points and themes. And somebody mm-hmm. turned to me and said, this isn't going to happen to you in television. This is really right. rare. Usually the network executive is going to be talking to you about hair color and can we get a gadget in there and maybe do a tie-in. So it was such an amazing job to have at that point in my life. I learned, and it was tough. I was scared at first. I had this fancy education, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm very grateful to this friend who hired me because she gave me real tough love on it. And I came out the other end of it, kind of, I think, knowing how to, how to tell a dynamic, beginning to know how to tell a dynamic story in 30 minutes. And the other thing, and this, I, I really mean this, you can't um, BS kids like right. an audience of kids knows when you're just marking time, when you're filling in stuff, having people chatter, they demand that the action constantly move forward. And so I learned how the importance of keeping it lean and dynamic and constantly moving forward. And I would imagine there is a great freedom in that creative process because you know, your audience is not yet cynical. Sure, absolutely. That, and so snark will get you nowhere. Right. Yeah, Because it's a device, and it's uh, a nice little eddy you can fall back into when you're writing for adults. Yeah. Oh, let's just drop in 45 seconds of snarkification, and everyone will understand what we're doing, and we're at smart marking time. But kids are not interested in that. Kids won't suffer that. 
Yeah. You know, one thing we also did with the show, and this again was, was Stephanie was adamant, Stephanie Simpson was adamant about it, is that there were no pop culture references. Partly, I think she didn't want the show to age. And so people can still watch it. It airs on PBS, um, I, different member stations. But, uh, um, but the, we didn't, there, there were no trends. There were no things that were hot at the moment, which can also just, is, is cheap to do that. I wonder if you have any thoughts now, because you mentioned the books principally from the Western canon. There's been a long-running debate in academic circles. It's now becoming much more a part of the mainstream conversation in our country now. Is there something suffocating about our reliance on the Western culture, on the Western canon? Does it exclude uh, voices? Does it exclude heritages, histories, other things that could more vivify our sense of the arc of literature, the arc of storytelling of other peoples, of other places. Any thoughts on that? I don't think it's an either or thing. Um, um, I think, you know, hopefully where we end up settling is not um, radical (laughs) revisionism, throwing out great things or altering things that might make us uncomfortable. Um, but I'll tell you, I'm working on a story right now about the statues, the controversy around statues. Mm -hmm. And I was in Philadelphia and I was brought to a statue. Uh, it's, I believe the only statue of a single African-American, there are statues and monuments to groups, but in Philadelphia, there's this one statue. It was put up in 2017 really great looking statue and a lot of modern sculpture. I'm sorry. I I like representational. I want to see the person, you know, and this is, and it's really well done of a man named Octavius Caddo, who was um, killed in 1871, black man on the way to the polls um, during this brief, but hopeful period of early reconstruction was, was um, rallying African-Americans to vote and great statue. And, um, this African-American man and his adorable daughter walked by while we were wrapping the shoot and his jaw dropped. And he said, because he had just been reading the inscription, he said, I knew nothing about him. I knew nothing about Octavius Caddo. And I have to tell you, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to just melt at that and realize, boy, this is that kind of broadening in action and the real importance of it. And I said, and so of course we started rolling right away. This man was named Les, great name, Les Starkey. And I said, Les, when you look at this statue, you feel, and he puffed up his chest and he said, pride. And, and I mean, it was almost like it was a made for television moment. (laughs) I looked at his adorable daughter and he said, you know, now you know who this man is. He's a hero. Um, and so, you know, these, these discussions get so rancorous and I don't think that, that people outside the media are obsessing in the same way. I don't think they're getting hung up on language the way that, that many of us are, but, um, but that was a real moment. And, and, and it's, and and I also felt like it was a moment where, everyone could gather around if they could watch that it would bring the temperature down <laughs> right of course and and if i hear you what you're saying is let us add to the canon but we don't need to subtract from the canon yeah I, i'm definitely i'm really uncomfortable with removing things because 
I find nothing scarier than nihilism. I worry that some of the rage is kind of just inchoate SAT word, right? Anyway, <laughs> but I feel like it's just kind of blind rage and I'm not always sure what it's about. I mean, and I'm, I want to be really clear. I think it's, I think it's really heartening the huge swing in opinion against Confederate monuments. Right. It's one of those things. We we are not talking about Confederate monuments when we're talking about the Western canon. Let us be absolutely clear about that. This is not, right, what do you call it, code words or whatever. And uh, um, absolutely not. Um, But um, look, I love what TCM did with Gone with the Wind. I think it was the right thing to do. I think that's the way to do it. And I know people sell contextual signage or, or, or prefaces and all that. People think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not enough. Well, I think it's a pretty good start. And so, Excellent. yeah. More of our conversation with Mo Rocca. Segment three will be about mediocre presidents, why we need to love them more than we do. I'm Major Garrett. The Takeout continues. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. Mo Rocca is our special guest. Yes, we are part of the CBS family, but make no mistake, I look up to him, ladies and gentlemen. He is a massive success. He is a creative person, and he turns words and phrases in ways I hoped someday to be as successful at as he is seemingly to do it without ever perspiring. Hope someday I can do that. So, Mo, mad respect to you in all respects. And it's true. I do have this weird thing where I don't sweat, which is really great for being on camera, but it will kill me 10 years early because I'm sure there's something really wrong with me. But when I did kids theater and you used to put on that like grease paint, like crazy amounts of, of foundation, I just wouldn't sweat at all. So. <laughs> there you go. So there's something wrong this, with me. This is a sweat-free experience. And if we were having a meal as we used to do on this show, we're still doing the work from home thing, you know, I'd be able to actually not just give that compliment, but understand its underlying meaning. Uh, and someday, Mo, we will have that meeting, I promise you. Uh, you have a thing about mediocre presidents. Why? I think there's something kind of amusing. You know, a, a, a pivotal part in kind of my, in my career was I was trying to figure out what was interesting to me, basically. I guess there were a lot of things that were interesting. And I read that Grover Cleveland's birthplace was in West Coldwell, New Jersey, a short bus ride from Manhattan. And I thought, who works there? And so I just, I went to Port Authority and I, um, and I wrote out there and I met a woman who was the docent there, a word I love, I love docents. And yes. her name was Sharon Farrell. I believe she may even still be there over 20 years later. And she raised her family on the top floor of the Grover Cleveland house birthplace in exchange for being the caretaker and the docent. And I thought, well, first of all, I smell sitcom. I mean, come on, like being raised in in the home of a forgotten president. And I know a lot of people like Robert Cleveland, even though the only thing they really know about him is he he's part of that Benjamin Harrison sandwich, right? The non-consecutive right. terms with yes. poor Benjamin Harrison in between. Um, and so I kind of, so I bought a one-way ticket to Indianapolis 
not because I was inspired by One Day at a Time, a sitcom that I always thought looked really depressing. Even the opening <laughs> credits looked so grimy, right? Yes. And, and uh, it, it, everything, it looked overcast and dirty. And it's not, Indianapolis is really great and has like, like hundreds of miles of bike routes. But anyway, um, but I went there then to go to Benjamin Harrison's house and I met a woman there that was in her 70s that had been volunteering for over 20 years. And the tour she gave you, by the end, you wanted to sandblast Mount Rushmore and replace it with Benjamin Harrison. So I found something intriguing, but also sweet and even inspiring about people who were dedicating themselves to keeping alive little pieces of history that without volunteer support, might fall by the wayside. These were not being protected by the Department of Interior. Right. They were not national historic sites. They right. were usually, you know, maintained by, um, but anyway, and and so that became sort of a fun, an avocation for me. And on Sunday morning, I've done a bunch of those pieces. Is there something about these mediocre presidents that you find in common or are they just victims of placid or near placid times? Well, sometimes they're victims of placid times. They, you know, you have to have the energy of a Teddy Roosevelt to become first tier without a war, <laughs> basically, right? And uh, uh, I think also sometimes they're the victims of a time when the executive branch was really weak, right? And Congress was really strong. So I think that I think that really kind of happens between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. It certainly happened for a short period after Nixon. I think it may end up happening. I mean, interesting to see if the presidency is um, a little shrunk in the near future. Um, uh, I, I don't know, um, because it's, right. it's gotten awfully powerful. Um, and, uh, but I also think it's, even the mediocre presidents were the above the title film stars of their day. And now they're largely forgotten. And maybe that makes sense. This is my convoluted way of saying that I think we may magnify the importance of, 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 of a presidency during its time. I think that's, by the way, one of the great problems and temptations that presidential biographers have, right? They need to make the president super heroic right. because otherwise, why would you read the book? And, and, some, and so sometimes it goes wildly Precise. out Precise. of whack. I mean, you know, and they, when, when these biographers are trying to sell books. Right. And there's also a heavy dose of recentism in the way we think about presidents. Every president that's been photographed on television and there is video and audio of that president, they live larger in our memory because they're more accessible. We feel we are closer to it than we actually are. There was a much greater distance between the governed and the presidency back in this era of whether you were a great or mediocre president. There was a greater sense of distance between that office and the country at large. Now we have compressed that distance, made it falsely more intimate than it is, and we feel like we know or have some sense of the president when in many cases we actually don't. Boy, I wonder if there were people in the early 1840s who never knew that William Henry Harrison was president because he was only president for 31 days or something, (laughs) and it took that long for news to travel. So anyway, they probably, it was like a blip, really, for them. Right. So uh, one quick question. It is often thought of by presidential scholars and historians that if you didn't get a second term, you're by nature mediocre. But I think there is two exceptions to that. I'd be curious your opinion. George Herbert Walker Bush and James K. Polk. I knew you were going to say Polk. 
He gets right. He said, he, I'm going to do four things, and he right. did them all, right? Did them all, yeah. I knew you were going to say that. Although I did a piece on the Mexican-American War, um, which the Mexicans think of as the American invasion they pretty do. fairly. Yes. Pretty, pretty fairly, fairly yep. actually. Yep. Grant agreed with them. Um, yep. So and, did Abraham uh, Lincoln initially. Right, right. He gave scorching speeches on the floor of the House against the Mexican-American War initially. Right. And, uh, and one biographer told me that Polk had – this terrifying ability to look you, she told me this about 10 years ago, had a terrifying and unique ability to look you straight in the eye and just lie flat out. Like that he was, um, he was competent. He, he uh, did what he said he was gonna do, but not a good man. And, not uh, a good man. And, um, and, uh, and George Herbert Walker Bush, yeah, I guess in, in light of all these 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 international debacles since then. I mean, um, handled things pretty well. The the dissolution of the right the Soviet Union and right, and and, and his his uh, uh, advocates would say extended the Civil Rights Act, extended the Clean Air Act, balanced the budget, or at least attempted to by raising taxes, going back on a right. campaign pledge to his political detriment, but for the betterment of the country. Americans with Disabilities Act, a lot of things happened in those four years, though he was ushered out uh, unceremoniously after one term. Uh, Mo, you're also very well known from Obituaries. It's an incredibly popular podcast. It's a best-selling book. What is it about obituaries and their place in American life that fascinates you? And do you have a fear, as I do, because I grew up in the newspaper business long before I got into the misbegotten world of television. There is something about a community voice that is lost when newspapers are no longer there or they're much smaller than they used to be and obituaries don't exist in ways they used to. They don't, although the funny thing is paid death notices, which should never be confused with obituaries. The obituary no, they should not. very upset about this. I mean, they're very sensitive about it. But those are what are keeping some of these small town papers going. Right. Is, mm-hmm. is, um, um, uh, yeah, of course, I fear that it's it's uh, it's going to go away. And I, 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 I've heard when I was touring with my book, I've, I've heard that there's I've got the sense that there's a real movement um, towards people writing obituaries, some, some people writing their own obituaries, but, <laughs> but also writing obituaries on online. That's certainly not a new thing, but that this is becoming bigger and bigger. But sure, the art of obituary writing, which is so beautiful, and I don't even think it's, I don't even see it on TV the, the way I used to. I feel like, you know, the evening newscasts that we grew up with would come sometimes end with beautifully written obituaries. And uh, um, uh, so, yes, I don't, I think it's, it's um, you know it's the it's it's the most consistently purely narrative form right of journalism, and I went to ObitCon, which is much better than Comic Con. And Comic Con, everyone's so clammy handed and ugh, just it's like a, it's a germ factory. I mean, I don't even need to say that anymore. But ObitCon was really great. It was in Washington last year. One of the writers there was telling me this gig is amazing because I get to write about sports, entertainment politics. I mean, they're so business, because, you know, depending on who dies. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about fascinating obituaries in Mo Rocca's life, those that have stuck with him, those he has shared with his receptive and appreciative audience. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Stay tuned for segment four. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. He's famous for many reasons. His name is Mo Rocca. He's our special guest. Mo, talking about mobituaries. Uh, do the best obituaries settle scores or reanalyze the popular record of somebody? I think, um, well, I think the best obits, um, I think the best obits, it's a great question. You know, it's so funny. After all this time I've spent with this project, I've never been asked that. I think the best obits probably do two things. They help explain how someone became the person that they did. Um, and I think they, they help explain why that person matters in a more public way. Um, but I, I, I love when it, um, the, the, the kind of quotidian details, um, very carefully chosen, that help mm-hmm. explain how someone became who they did. So um, I have a book of old New York Times obits, and one, the one on Alfred Hitchcock has a detail early on that as a child growing up in an English village, when he was like five or six years old, his father had the local, local jailer throw little Alfred into a cell and slam the door behind him, kind of like a, an old version of a scared straight program. And the jailer said, that's what happens to right. bad little boys. And that Hitchcock had said, this, that clanging sound kind of reverberated in his head throughout his life. And, you know, so much of his work ended up being about crime and punishment, mistaken identity and things like that. And yep. so that's a kind of juicy detail, um, you know, and, uh, or there was one I loved in, um, um, about Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who lived so long that not mm-hmm. only did very few people left know who she was, she lived until I think she was 106 or something, but I think even the people who knew she was loved, knew who she was didn't know she was alive. But anyway, but they had a detail of her during the, the war, um, World War II, going to the White House, um, and Eleanor Roosevelt saying to her across the table, um, how does your country treat dissenters, political dissenters? And that the writer of the open described that Madame Chiang Kai-shek just took her, uh, the, 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 the long fingernail of her index finger and drew it across her own neck <laughs> and made it like a slicing sound. <laughs> and then Eleanor Roosevelt gasped. But it was, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it was, it was a great little detail that said, yes, they were allies. But that didn't mean that the Chiang Kai-shek was a good guy. Not always, not always aligned in basic uh, human rights or values. There you go. Um, one of the things you said uh, about Herbert Hoover is something I've often believed, that there is this tendency to reduce him to a failed presidency and completely forget this unbelievably important role he played in human history. I mean, he was the, he was the called the great humanitarian. I mean, and, right. and what's so extraordinary is this guy, um, you know, orphaned, what is it, by the age of nine, I think, and from this Quaker village shipped west to live with these cold, emotionally and geographically you know, distant relatives. And, uh, um, and then, you know, goes to Stanford, becomes this real mogul in the world of mining. But then when World War I breaks out and he's living in London, 
he use he becomes a one man State Department negotiating yes. with both the British and the Germans before U.S. entry into World War One to bring huge relief to the people of Belgium and, and Northern France. I mean, he's still a revered figure in Belgium because of what he did. The millions of people he saved from starving. And in, in a biography I've read about him, he was so intimidated in his one word applied about the the structure of the presidency, the responsibilities of the presidency, that he wasn't as decisive then as he was in this previous role. It didn't actually prepare him. You would have looked at that resume and said, this prepares you perfectly for this job. But he was so intimidated by it, so struck by its enormous importance in American life, he kind of shrank from it. And that's a small, I think, tragedy of history and and his persona. It really is. And it's so moving the way, and and it was, and, and, you know, FDR needed to keep him as the bogeyman, right? FDR's tenure, like Herbert Hoover needed to remain kind of the bad guy. So it's very moving when when Truman sort of brings him back out into the light um, after um, FDR's death. Um, no, and you know, everything before you're a president, every, it's all preseason ball, right? And I mean, only, <laughs> only, it doesn't count. Only Grant has been, has managed, and now he's being, right, revisited. But, but, you know, for all those years when his presidency was seen as failed or best mediocre, Grant was still acknowledged as a great general and, and you know, all that he had done for his presidency. So in these uh, obituaries, you you also come across people who you think didn't get enough even in their actual life, and you want to bring them more to life in death. Any examples that that run right at the top of your memory? Well, there's a series of, um, in the podcast and in the book, of forgotten forerunners, um, sort of pioneers before pioneers. And uh, I was one day flipping through a book of presidential trivia. And, uh, and, And I mean, really weird stuff. And I had read about Chester Allen Arthur that as a young man, as a lawyer, pre-mutton chops when he was clean shaven, that he represented a young black woman named Elizabeth Jennings who'd been kicked off of a streetcar, the public transportation of its day. They went to civil court, they sued and they won. And the date was 1854 and I kind of couldn't believe it. And I did think, boy, this is kind of nutty that I'm finding out about this in a book of trivia about presidents. I mean, why isn't this woman named Elizabeth Jennings well-known? And I also was struck instantly. I thought, that's almost exactly 100 years before the Montgomery bus boycott in Rosa Parks. And I just was fascinated. Why don't we know this? What was her story? She won. And and when they won in court, when she'd been kicked off of of this horse-drawn streetcar down in the Five Points District of of Manhattan, which people will know from gangs of New York, maybe, um, uh, because of that civil court victory, New York's transportation system integrated fairly quickly. Like by the the post-Civil War period, it was integrated. Um, in, as a result of that of that court victory, um, and uh, um, and so so she's sort of a pioneer before the pioneer, and another one is Moses Fleetwood Walker, who played what passed for Major League Baseball uh, sixty three years before Jackie Robinson, and he played for a team called the Toledo Blue Stockings, which had been elevated to the American Association, which was the the, the major league of its time. Um, and it was a very short period before a, a legendary white player named Cap Anson said, I will not play on the field with a black player. And a, a, um, a, a person with the, with the current minor league team um, in Toledo, which you'll know from MASH, um, it was the Toledo Mudhens, right? Because Klinger was a big fan of those. But he said, listen, 
for a color line to be broken, it has to be drawn in the first place. And I thought that that was so, I thought it was profound because we know about all these color lines, these barriers for many different groups being broken, but how were they set up in the first place? And it's oftentimes that there was this almost like this, this beautiful period long ago that's been forgotten where things were kind of working out. And then, yes. then the gate came down. It happened with jockeys Some, at the Kentucky Derby. Right. Jockeys at the Kentucky Derby, yes. Were black. Mm-hmm. This Absolutely. is an incredible statistic. Um, the, I can't remember the exact number of, of early uh, winners of the Kentucky Derby. I, I, the very first winner is a black jockey, but there are a series of them. And then not a single black jockey even competes between 1921 and 2000. I mean, it's right. kind of amazing. It's yes. crazy. Crazy. It's crazy. very Moses that- Joshua. Very much so. That is the voice of Mo Rocca. For our beloved radio audience, that's all we have time for this week. Catch up with us next week. For those of you on CBSN and, of course, our early adopters on the podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. From CBS News, this is the Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial, the fun and games portion of our conversation. But come on, let's be honest. This whole thing has been fun and games. When you're with Mo Rocca, that's all you have is you play some games and you have some fun. So Mo, uh, let me ask you the three threshold questions each and every guest of this wonderful program have been asked. The answers delight our audience because they reveal a little bit more about the person. Uh, You've already revealed a good deal about yourself, but this will expedite and advance that cause. So, in no particular order, uh, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie, or one of your favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay, I'm going to start um, with the movie. Um, I love, I love a place. It's a tie between a place in the sun um, mm-hmm. and um, and the birds, because that scene in the birds <laughs> in the diner. Okay, when they're waiting. Yes. So as a kid, it terrified me. But now when I watched, I realized how much fun Hitchcock was having. Those crazy characters like, birds are scum of the earth. They should, we should wipe them off the map. And then the, the woman at the beret, birds have been around for two and a half billion years, Mrs. Bundy, the woman <laughs> who keeps smoking, Tippy Hedren keeps saying, I'm telling you, they attack the children. And then remember the mother who's like, they're scaring the children. And, right, and, right. and 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 you know it's it's such a great scene um okay and then the music i just it's a sort of it's sort of the gamut of psychology right there in this contained space and that's what hitchcock it feels to me is having fun with totally having fun yeah exactly and you can you can imagine yourself i'm it would be interesting if you took a poll <laughs> who do you root for whose side exactly. are you on who, is sort of what you relate he, to yeah <laughs> yeah it's such, it, it's so great um and a place in the sun why i think um, because when I, when I watch it, I feel guilty because I want him to kill Shelley Winters. I want Montgomery Cliff to, because, and I think that's kind of part of the genius of the movie is, is she's so innocent, Shelley Winters and Montgomery Cliff though can be with Elizabeth Taylor who is so intoxicatingly, astonishingly beautiful at this point. And so you're rooting for Montgomery Cliff to do the wrong thing, to kill whiny Shelley Winters. But I just, I mean, 
I just, every time I watch it, I'm thinking, I know I shouldn't feel this way, but tip her over, drown her, and get back to Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> so, so, so I think it's, it's, um, um, uh, we'll file that under layers of complexity. Yeah, I think so. And I also love the class issues also. I love the class issues mm-hmm. in it because he's, right. he's working class and he's been falling in love with a woman who's, um, you know, upper class. Um, um, the music, I just, I'm a sucker for show tunes. I mean, I'm a cliche. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll listen, I'll <laughs> ask, I'll uh, sh- show tunes and Streisand. If it's pre-1980, like, um, so it's a lot right. of Streisand, pre-1980. Uh, and, uh, um, but I listen to, um, I'm trying to, I'm diversifying my tastes. Um, and, uh, but yeah, a lot of, uh, I love Broadway musicals. Um, and a book that's that I go back to um, mm-hmm. over, I'm trying to think of one specific, you know, I love biography. So I love the Edmund Morris, Teddy Roosevelt, the rise of Theodore Roosevelt. Right. Um, that book stayed with me um, for a long, has stayed with me. Um, I love Edith Wharton. Um, I love that, that the, um, the House of Mirth is a, is a book. I'm trying to think of if there's one that really, I mean, I love, um, I have to ultimately go with the 1974 world book. I actually, yeah, there have, I actually, <laughs> I knew there was a, I knew there was a prop involved somewhere. <laughs> because I grew up and I feel so bad for kids that don't get to come home and yep. lie on their stomach on the red carpet in the family room and just yep. page through the world book. Page through. Right. The encyclopedia, it it brings the world to you. Facts and brief on all those countries. I've memorized them. <laughs> I'm still stuck in 1974. I still think Ford is president and Archie Bunker is right. the most popular character on TV. So uh, about show tunes and Broadway musicals, is there one in particular that can always make you happy if you're in a down place? Um, well, South Pacific, as soon as you, you know, um, I did actually, yeah, I did actually play. You, right. you played in that. Yeah, I played, um, I played the professor in, in uh, um, a small role in South Pacific in Paper Mill Playhouse. I love the music, man. Um, yeah. Um, and I great, love, great I love musical company. I love Sondheim's musicals because you can keep going back to them and finding something new. And they're so psychological. Sometimes I'll listen to a song from Sunday in the Park with George, and I feel like I need to send Stephen Sondheim a copay. Like it's like it's like it feels like therapy. Right. <laughs> <I> mean, <it's... laughs> yes. yes. Yes, it's my therapist a, not this week. A, Stephen Sondheim gets it this week. You know, seeking treatment. Exactly. Exactly, Mo. It's been a delight. I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, thanks for spending time with us, and we will see you down the road. And we wish you all the very best, Major. I love talking with you, and I can't wait until we can do it in person and with food. Indeed. All right. See you next week, folks. Thanks for digging the takeout. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, 
go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.